It is on. There we go. Now it is. It, it was like halfway. That's my bad. I'm to start all over. All right. <laughs> Invite somebody to Easter. That is the deal. But for real, I know that as you think about that, you live in the same area I do, and I know that sometimes you can feel like everybody you know is already going to go to church and already has a church, or maybe that's the only time they go to church. And, um, and, and listen, let, let me just be clear. Our goal is not to just fill up our church service a couple times next week. And, and like, there is a pattern in which people in our culture are more likely to go to church on Christmas and Easter and then likely not go any other time. And we know that, and that's not, we're not just trying to like, you know, have good numbers next week, but we want to leverage that pattern and, and say, okay, if our neighbors and if the people around us really are more willing to come on a day like Easter, then we would be foolish not to invite them. Because what we, what we want is not for them just, you know, not for us to have big numbers to brag about next week, but for the people that we know and love and people that are around us to hear the word of God and to let God have an opportunity to change their heart right? Through his, through his word and through his spirit. And so we do want you to think about, so maybe most of the people you would have thought are already going to a church next weekend, or they've already been invited. And that's, that's like a good thing, because what I want you to think about is a little bit further, the people, the next layer of people that you don't think about often, but may just be across the street from you, or across the, you know, cubicle from you, or, you know, where, you know, across the, you know, elliptical from you at the gym, like whatever it is, where you see people, and, and I want you to just, it's not difficult, and, and that's the other thing, it's like teed up for us, like to just say, hey, what's your plans next weekend? How are you celebrating Easter? And they may say, oh, I'm going to my church, and if not, you just say, hey, I'd love for you to join us at ours. It's really simple, and the, the mind-blowing thing is they might actually say yes. So please take the time to do that. We have two services on Easter morning, 9 and 1045. Uh, we will have childcare for uh, both, so birth, Journey Kids, sorry, man, slap on my hand. Uh, it, is, it is ministry back there, it's not just childcare. We will have Journey Kids for birth up to, I don't know, four or five? Five, Sharon's telling me five. So at both services, uh, I think we could use maybe another volunteer or two if you're willing to help. No, we're good, we got it, all right, never mind. Thank you for, for stepping up for that last week. So Journey Kids at both services, we want you guys to come. We want your family and your friends to come celebrate Jesus. It's a party, right? It's right that we party because Jesus got out of the grave, amen? We're celebrating that, and so we look forward to seeing you all next week. Join us for Good Friday, Friday this, this coming Friday at 6 o'clock where we enter into um, the cost of our salvation, because before we get to Easter and the resurrection, there was indeed the cross, where Jesus took our place and endured the wrath of God that we had accrued, that we deserved. And so we want to enter into that Friday night, 6 o'clock, come. It's one of my favorite services of the year. It'll be fairly short, right around an hour or so, but it is a reflective and impactful time for us to enter into the cross before we celebrate the resurrection. So make plans for that. Turn to Daniel chapter 3. So we're moving into some of the more commonly known stories in Daniel. The Daniel 3 is indeed where the fiery furnace takes place. Um, we will get to that part of the story, um, not next week because it's Easter, but after that. Um, but we are going to look at kind of what leads into that, and that's Nebuchadnezzar building this crazy statue and demanding that everybody bow down to it. And um, and I think if we move quickly through the story, there's, there, you know, we could kind of just get to the fiery furnace part. But I want us to stop and, and reflect upon what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar here. And I think it's interesting as we relay it back to actually last uh, week's or two weeks ago, the last passage that we preached from this, the end of chapter two. So we're going to look at the end of two and the first seven verses of three 
together. Um, so while you're, you're finding that, I want you to think for a moment. Do you know of anybody? Have you recognized anybody? And this is kind of, again, more common in our culture that I mentioned earlier, Bible Belt, where they, they seem to have had an experience with Jesus. They seem to have had a conversion. Perhaps they even got baptized and made a big public deal about it, right? And you were rejoicing that that happened, and maybe they were coming from a radical place, and, and they seemed to be following Jesus. But then all of a sudden, maybe it was uh, a couple weeks, maybe it was a few months, maybe it was years later that, that they're no longer attending church, no longer following Jesus, no longer seem to have any of that fruit. Anybody known someone like that? Or perhaps that's part of your story. Maybe you, maybe that's in your past and you've been you know, called back and, and rededicated and, and maybe that's a part of your own testimony. And uh, what I wanna, want us to know from today is that I think it's really common in our culture to see that because so many people kind of grew up around church and the Bible's been sort of reduced to you want to go to hell or not, right? And, and if you don't, we'll pray this prayer. So a lot of people kind of have this experience or, or this thing to point to in the past where they, they feel like they have security. So I think that happens around here, but it's not, it's not like new to us and it's not... Um, specific to us. In fact, I think we sort of have uh, somewhat of an example of it here in, um, in Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebuchadnezzar himself is this really crazy king that is radical. And I think we can look at him and go, man, that he's like, we don't compare ourselves to Nebuchadnezzar because we don't have kingdoms and we don't have the absolute power that he did. However, I think we're more like him than we realize. And I think his posture and his um, way of, of pursuing life is actually more common than we realize. So that's what we're going to look at uh, in Daniel today, mainly in chapter 3, but I want to read, I want you to jump up to the end of 2. We're going to start in verse 48 of chapter 2, and we'll read down to 3-7. So, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. This was after Daniel um, revealed the dream to him and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. So, this is this is Daniel, this is what, this is how Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who just threatened to kill everybody, this is how he responds to Daniel being used by God to reveal this dream to him. He bows down, fell on his face, paid homage to Daniel, and begins to offer up incense and, and in some ways sort of worship Daniel, it seems. But the king answered to Daniel and says, Truly, truly, God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men. And Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now, verse chapter 3, we don't know exactly how long has transpired between here. The best guess from theologians and historians is around 16 or 17 years between these two stories. And so we're about 20 years into Daniel and his friends being in Babylon as exiles uh, but so a few years have passed, but, and so, but I, these stories are connected. So even though it, it sort of just kind of flows in a new chapter and seems like a new story, they are indeed connected, and I think we need to make note of that. So a few years later, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. And if you know from the previous story, the dream involved a, uh, the statue uh, that had a head of gold, and, and the revelation from Daniel was that that is indeed Nebuchadnezzar, but that he was going to have a temporal reign, and others would follow him, other kingdoms and, and uh rulers would follow him, and he would be temporary. Um, but, and so kind of in context with that, Nebuchadnezzar now makes not, it's not a dream, he actually builds a statue, an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 
with six cubits. That's about 90 feet um, tall and about nine feet wide or so. Best guess is it was on a pedestal. Otherwise, it's really a disproportional statue. If you think of a a man being 90 feet tall and only nine feet wide, it would be a very thin uh, Kevin Durant-looking man. But but I think it's probably more on a a pedestal, if you will, uh, part of that. And then the the top had the, 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 the man, the figure, which we assume is Nebuchadnezzar, though we don't know that for sure. So he puts that in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This is the same place where the Tower of Babel was. This is Babylon. This is the, we, we looked at that in, I think, the second uh, sermon in this series. And so there's, there's significance there. This is where humans once before tried to build a tower of significance for themselves to make a name for themselves. The spirit of Babylon continues to perpetuate that pursuit of self-glory over and over and over again, still alive today. And we'll look at that in the coming weeks. Then the king, verse 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, all the people, the justices, the magistrates, and the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, yeah, this is intentional, but it lists it all, and it seems redundant, but I think that the language here is, is to make it clear that everyone was coming, that this was not an exceptional come if you feel like it. This is a, a we are all going to do this. This is a government saying this is a mandated religious uh, pledge your allegiance to this king and his image. And so this is a big, big deal. So it is listed twice. They invited them and they all came. And that's setting up the context in which there will be thousands bowed down and then three remaining standing, which we'll look at in the next sermon, uh, which leads to them earning their ticket to the furnace which you may know part of that story. So they all came, um, and they gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, or trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down And worship shall immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the the pipe, the lyre, and the trigon, and harp, and bagpipe, and every kind of music, again, it's it's listed there. This is a a big deal. This is significant music. It's a worship service, right? This is huge symphony-like orchestra, uh, all hands on deck service to dedicate this image and to dedicate the people to make sure they dedicate their allegiance to this image. So when all that happened, they fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, that's, that's it. We need your help. This is your word, and um, we believe that you said about your own word that you wrote it, and that it's good for us, that it's useful, that it's living, that it is used by you through your spirit to separate motives to reveal hearts to lay us bare before you. So Father, I'm asking that you would do that today. I'm asking that you would use me, your servant, to speak your word to your people, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive this, your word, and that you would change us through it. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we saw in the last story 
Nebuchadnezzar is this ruler. He has absolute power. He's threatened to kill all of his uh, wise men, his, his magicians and sorcerers, and all those people because they can't, you know, if they can't and because they can't, uh, do what he's asked him to do, which is tell him the dream. So he's on a power trip. This is how he rolls. He is a ruler of the known world. Uh, the, Babylon, or the, the Babylonian Empire is the empire of the day. He is in control of that. He answers to no one. He has absolute power. He has a harem full of wives and women and whoever he wants. He has feast. He has gold. He has riches. This is who he is. And we saw in the last chapter that even though no man could conquer him, he had no one to fear on earth. A dream from our God rattles this guy to his core, freaks him out, and this is what leads to, somebody's got to tell me what this means, and I'll only to trust the person who I know is connected to God, and to prove that, you've got to tell me the dream. So Daniel does this, and what's interesting is when Daniel does this, the verse that we read, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is a, a, a polytheistic, you know, worshiper of uh, Marduk primarily, which is, you know, a, a Baal-type God, there's, there's all sorts of gods in this day, and he, you know, is, is very much like we saw in chapter one, when they conquered Jerusalem, he took vessels from our God's temple and carry them to his God's temple. So this is a guy who, who worships whoever is convenient to him and is primarily Marduk, right, this God. And so this is who he is. And yet in this moment when Daniel, you know, shows up with this word from God, he does what? He falls upon his face and he pays homage to Daniel. He, he says, hey, let's give an offering. Let's burn incense. These are religious activities, Right? He, he falls down at the feet of Daniel, and he tells him, verse 47, Hey, you, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you, have been able to, for you to have been able to reveal this mystery. So the king gave Daniel great honors and seemed to pay homage to his God. So listen, it, it would make sense for us in this moment to go, Man, it seems as though Nebuchadnezzar has converted. It seems as though Nebuchadnezzar has confessed the glory of God and, and perhaps responded to the dream and realized his mortality and has fallen on his face before our God. And yet, what we see is that a few years later, however long, that this guy, not only does he not remain in that posture before our God, but he chooses to ignore the warning from the dream because the dream was, hey, you're the head of gold. God's given you incredible power and influence. And he gave it to you. But your rule is going to be temporary. And it's going to come others after you. Right? So it's a dream that, that shocks Nebuchadnezzar into a reality of his own mortality. Right? And so in that moment, he's confronted by this God and he lays down you know, and pays tribute. But it doesn't last. There's not a, a, a lasting change that happens. Because now, not only is he not worshiping that God, but he's doing the exact thing that that God has commanded his people should not do. And instead of it just being, he's not just paying homage to that dream, you know, so he can remember the lesson that God had taught him. If he was doing that, he would have made a statue that was, you know, a head of gold and then uh, bronze, or, or then silver and then bronze and then iron and clay, right? From the previous chapter. But, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he makes the statue that is what? all gold. This is a statement from him saying, no, no, I am not going to surrender to that eternal God. I want to be eternal. I want to be immortalized. I want to be worshiped, and I will be fully on display in gold. Now, it's not 100% clear whether this image was of Nebuchadnezzar himself or of one of his gods or some combination of the two. I believe just from the context that it likely was, at least in some way, him and maybe his attempt to immortalize that. So, but, but nonetheless, it is an image that he commands 
everyone bow down, and the language is even worship. Okay, so what is going on there? What, did he really not convert? Like, what, what is happening in that moment? And, and, and here's, but before you just dismiss this and think, well, I don't have the power that, that Nebuchadnezzar is like, I, I don't need to be called to repent of that. Here's what I want to submit to you. Here, here's, here's my thesis for the day, if you will. That we're all actually Nebuchadnezzar to varying degrees of success. Right, you think about this guy, he is, you think about what we know of him, he has absolute power, he's, 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 he's seeking out every bit of pleasure, comfort, power, authority, praise that he can. He's milking it all, and he's got the resources. He stands atop that celebrity, that power culture, and no one can rival him. And yet, and so we look at him and go, oh, well, you know, I'm not there, so I don't have that to repent of. And yet, if we're honest, we're all Nebuchadnezzars just to varying degrees of success. What do I mean by that? That we are glory-hungry people. That we are glory-hungry people. Now, there's actually a reason for that, because we were made in the image of the all-glorious one, and we were made to worship him, right? We use language sometimes about having a God-sized hole in our heart, right? And, and that's not terrible language, because it sort of helps us reflect on, like, there's something in us that will only be satisfied in God. Augustine reflects upon life and says that, that we are all restless until we find our rest in God, because you've made us for yourself, he says, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. But if you look back to even original sin from the garden, it was tied to what? Glory, right? It was Satan whispering to Adam and Eve saying, well, God's just holding out on you. If you eat that, he knows that you'll be what? Like God. You'll be like him. And that's the draw of the original sin is, oh, I want to be like God. And so we begin to pursue and, and from that, the fall that happens, and we're separated from our, our, our source of life, right? The living waters that were supposed to be our relationship with God. We're separated from that, and yet we still have this hunger for glory. We were made to worship God, and he is an all-glorious creator that we will never drink to the full, that we will never get tired of, that will never stop satisfying us. And yet, when our sin separates us from that, we're left to find something that would fill that hole. And that is what we all end up doing. That is all of our posture, again, to varying degrees of success, right? So Nebuchadnezzar has a lot of power. He's born into this place. He's given this kingdom. He conquers, he uses it. He is successful by everybody else's standards. He has the power, the celebrity, the fame, the fortune, the comfort, the pleasure, all of that. And we look and go, okay, it doesn't matter. But here's the deal. The same pattern is on display for us over and over and over and over again in our culture. Right? I, don't pro I don't encourage you to stay up on like entertainment news because it's exhausting and silly and over-sexualized and there's a lot of danger there. But if you pay attention just a little bit to those in our culture that have arrived, right, whatever that means, when they get to that place of success, whether that be a sports athlete, uh, you know, whether that's Tom Brady after, I don't know, a Super Bowl or two, almost in tears, saying... You look up the clip. He's saying, why, why, do I, why do I still feel like there's something more? This guy's on top of the world. He's married a supermodel. He's making millions and millions of dollars. He's won a Super Bowl. He's, the, like, he's already being talked about as the greatest, and yet he's almost in tears saying, why, why, why am I feeling this way? Right? We see celebrity after celebrity get checked into rehab, right? lose their fortunes, right? lose their minds. 
we see Jim Carrey say something very explicit. He, he says himself, he says, uh, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. Now, he still hasn't found the answer. He's off in some, we pray for him. Like, I'm, I'm, I, I, don't, I want a joke, but it's not funny because he's off in some really strange place looking for meaning. But the reality is the money, the fame, the houses, the comfort, the pleasure, all of that, it didn't satisfy. It left him empty. And the truth is, we struggle and we strive. And, and we're all, we just haven't got to Jim Carrey level yet. And so we dismiss it. And we think, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be that. I'm not trying to get like a house in L.A. I just want like a house in this subdivision. Right? I just need to get this kind of car. I just need to get this level of income. I just need to get this weight so that I will be this level of attractive. I just need to get this many likes on Instagram or this many followers or this many friends. I just need to get this level of power and influence. And, and, and it, it translates to all of us differently, but we're all pursuing our own glory, right? And so we look at somebody like Nebuchadnezzar and we look at these people who are called to bow down to him. And, and for them, it's not that big a deal because they're polytheists. What's more? We'll just add one more God to the list. Why? Because it serves us in the moment. We don't want to die, right? We don't want to go to the furnace. So I'll bow down before that God serves us in the moment. Polytheism is honestly, it's, we, we would feel like blasphemous if we ever acknowledged that there's another God, wouldn't we? Because you grew up in a Christian culture, you know that Jesus Christ, you know, we know about the Trinity, we know that God is, is God, you, you know the right answers to that. So we would never like say, oh, well, there's probably other deities that we need to worship. And yet, we're just as idolatrous, it just looks more subtle in our culture. What do I mean by that? I mean, the Nebuchadnezzar, was driven to bow down before God and have some spiritual experience with God. Why? Because it served him in the moment. Because he was rattled to his core by a dream that God confronted him with. And so he worships and to some degree. He has a spiritual experience, but it does not translate into conversion. John Owen is a, a famous Puritan writer that, that's written a ton. He, he, he compares... Not this specific passage, but this, this tendency of, of people and sinners to, to turn to God for a moment. And listen, we have language like this from Jesus, right? Jesus says when the, when the kingdom of God is preached, it's like seed being tossed over different kinds of soil. And sometimes it's on hard soil, and it goes nowhere. The birds come along and snatch it up, and it has no fruit. Other times it lands in, in some shallow ground and, and springs up really quickly, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, there's conversion there. And then it has no root, so when the sun comes, it chokes it out, and it dies. And then other times it gets a little deeper and it grows a little bit more, but then thorns and thistles around, you know, choke it out and it doesn't make it. But then there's others that land on good fruit. So, and, and a good soil that it's brought up into good and, and bear good fruit. So we have that language from even our Savior later in the Gospels. Uh, but for us to to see people with these, you know, false conversions, with these these patterns of, okay, it seemed that they had an experience, but then I don't know what happened. I think John Owen puts it into good language. I'm going to read this to you. It's, just a, it's, it's, it's a bit long, but, but just hang with me. He says, this is a lot like a traveler who's on his way, and while he's on his way, he's met with a violent storm of thunder and rain. And immediately, he turns out of his way to some house or tree for his shelter. But yet, this doesn't cause him to give over his journey. So as soon as the storm is over, he returns to his way and progress again. So it is with a man 
in bondage to sin. So you see the language he's putting there? He's saying this is a lot like somebody who's they're on their way to a meeting, but they get confronted with a storm, right? They don't have cars back in this day, so they got to do something to get in shelter, right? So he says, on their way to a meeting, this is where I'm headed, this is the path I'm on. Okay, I'm about to get struck by lightning and blown off the reservation, so I need some shelter. So I'll take whatever tree shelter I can get, but he doesn't give up where he's headed. He's still headed there, and as soon as the storm's over, he's back on his way. He says, so it is with, with a man in bondage to his sin. He says, they are in a course of pursuing their lust. And the law meets with them in a storm of thunder and lightning from heaven and terrifies them and hinders them in their way. And this turns them for a season out of their course. They will run to prayer or amendment of life, right? This is self-help. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to go to church for some shelter from the storm of wrath, which is feared coming upon their consciences. But is their course stopped? Are their principles altered? Not at all. So soon as the storm is over, they begin to wear out that sense and the terror that was upon them. And they turn again to their former course in the service of sin again. What he's saying here is this, this happens a lot. That, and, and you see this. And this is why I, I don't always, like the way that we've presented the gospel and, and watered it down in our culture is not always the fullness of the gospel. Because to just come at somebody and say, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And to remind them of their mortality and then convince them that they're a sinner and that, you know, most people, don't, well, I don't want to go to hell. So they might be inclined to, to pay homage to God, to bow down in that moment. But, but if it's just, well, I, I don't want to go to hell, so I need to do something about that, well, then that's not truly changing course, right? Repentance is, is, hey, I'm headed this way, and I'm going to turn completely around and go the other way, right? It's not, oh, let me add this to my portfolio of investments while I'm going to continue on my way. And that's what happens a lot in our culture. That's what happens a lot in today's world. We have a lot of people who are pursuing their own passions, their own lust, and they're confronted with the reality that they're going to die one day, and they need to make some plans for that. They need to make some arrangements for that so they will turn to God. So let me just, that's oversimplifying it, and that's putting it in a very general category, but let me make it a little bit more personal. Let me ask you, why do you want to be a Christian? Why do you want to be a Christian? Because to have just gotten tired of the bitter taste of drunkenness and to walk away from the bottle does not mean that you've acquired a taste for the living waters of Christ. To just want to look like you're trying harder and doing better does not mean that you've truly been converted and born again and have life in Christ. I've known people who are struggling with unbelief, but they didn't want that to be known because they're in business in our area. And people don't always want to go to an atheist in our area. What does that say? That says there's some cultural pressure to go to church, to be a good old boy, right? And so sometimes we, we smuggle in our own idols, as one author put it, into church, where we're really serving ourselves, And that's what polytheism is. It's not actually about worshiping those other gods. You're worshiping yourself. You realize that, right? And it's just whatever's convenient and whatever's serving you in that moment. 
right? You need fertility, we're gonna worship the fertility God. I'm gonna make an offering to that, right? You need sun so that you can eat, you know, so your crops will grow, we're gonna worship this, the God of the sun. You need rain so that the sun doesn't kill all those crops, we're gonna, you know, worship the God who brings rain. And you see how that, that just develops, and whatever my need is, who can give me that? Okay, I'll, in a lot of ways, prostitute myself out to them. This is how polytheism works. But then reality is, this is how our own modern day even in Bible Belt culture, idolatry works. Because we have our own worship of self. We're after our own glory. We're after our own power. We're after our own image being worshipped. You think about the power of social media. You think about the power that it has over our young people. Where our young women are, are seduced into you know, showing more and more of their body on social media. Why? So they can get more and more likes, so that they can feel more and more validated, right? You think about the power of, of, of pornography, right? We can mock Solomon and, and, and David and, and even Nebuchadnezzar for their harems, but in reality, we're doing the same thing. Ours is just digital. And if we had the power that they had, we would likely have the same physical harem at our pleasure as well. That without Christ, our hearts are inerrantly wicked and are going to pursue and to continue, as one of the reformers said, just be idol factories. We're just gonna crank out idol after idol after idol because we are glory hungry. And until we find our rest in God, we will continue to be restless. So what do we do about this? This is not a matter of, of information or even acknowledgement. This is a matter of transformation that only takes place when, our, when, when we are dethroned from our own hearts and Jesus is seen as glorious. What do I mean? I mean that the Nebuchadnezzar was simply confronted with a storm and he needed shelter for the moment, so he bowed down. But we see later that he begins to, he continues this pursuit of his own self-glory. He continues this pursuit of his own self-exaltation to the point that he's building a statue. You may not have gotten there yet. You got a lot of boxes to check before you're seen as excessive or celebrity level. So you can sort of hide in our culture. You can still be seen as a good person. Nebuchadnezzar, he's a whack job. He's killing people, right? He's angry, like he's, he's a tyrant, Nobody's seeing him as necessarily as a good person, right? You can hide. You can hide in the, in the culture of good values and morals and still be just as, as idolatrous and just as ambitious of your own self-glory as this guy right here. So what do we do? There's a... I think it's in the article that I attached on your digital bulletin, but, but regardless, there's a, there's a line that, that says what we need is not a mirror, but a window. That if we're going to find true transformation and we're going to find, and listen, this is, man, so much of today's literature, and literature is a strange thing, it's all digital now, so much of today's you know, publications and advertisements is all about what? Self-help or self-love now is even the language in the mental health world, right? We pitch this idea that what we need is to really get some time to care for ourselves, really get some time to be alone and, and you know, connect with, our, with ourselves. But listen, that's, that's only going to continue to capitulate this pursuit of your own self-glory. What we need is not a mirror. What we need is a window in which to look through. And, and so oftentimes, one of the other reformers, I didn't look up this, some of this is just kind of coming to me, but one of the other reformers called our sacraments 
as windows into a spiritual world. So if you've got your communion elements, and if you don't, go ahead and step to the back and grab them. But I want you to take those out and don't eat them yet. I want you to take that out and I want you to reflect for a moment. And I want you to actually process and think and acknowledge where you are. Because here's the truth. There is a God. He is eternal. He is everlasting. He sits on his throne. He has made the whole world. He has made all the universes that our scientists are, are still exploring. He's made it all. With the power of his voice, he made it all. He's holy, he is righteous, and he will last forever. And you are not him. You are not him. I am not him. I get real concerned when, when, other, when, when churches are, 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 you know, really, when, when those preachers are becoming celebrities and they got their own websites and they're cranking out this content and everybody's look, like a real concerned about that. And a lot of what those, some of those churches, right, Joel Steen, Steve Furtick, some of those guys, they're not really preaching the gospel. They're, they're preaching some level of self-exaltation. And I'm going to be honest. If they just said, hey, these are leadership, feel-good, motivational talks, I got no problems with them. But don't call it a church. If you ain't preaching Jesus' blood and our only hope is found in him, don't call it a church. We need to be careful of that level of self-exaltation because only Jesus is to be exalted. Only Jesus is to be put in a place of glory. And you are not him. You are not him. What does that mean? Until you are kicked off the throne of your own heart, you will not find true salvation. Jesus, when he was talking to the woman at the well, they were having a similar conversation about what does worship look like and what is real work. You know, there, there was some debate about that. And, 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 and this woman is a woman who has very, very actually prostituted herself out, right, looking for fulfillment. Jesus calls her out for that. It's a beautiful story that a lot of layers we don't have time to unpack. But what he says after asking her to give him a drink, he says, hey, everybody who drinks this water, they're going to get thirsty again. And we know that, right? Drinking one, one, one cup, one, you know, you're going to get thirsty again. Maybe in a few minutes, maybe a few hours, certainly in a few days, you're going to get thirsty again. But Jesus says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. What does he mean? He means what he's offering is actual soul-satisfying hope, soul-satisfying substance. He says, and the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Christian, Jesus said that he came to give you what? Abundant life. Eternal life. We fail ourselves terribly to only think of that as being heaven and eternity after we die. What he's offering is eternal life even now, in this moment, everlasting life where we are satisfied in such a way that we stop pursuing, we stop hungering for the things of this world because we have gotten the thing that satisfies us most deeply. And now we have perspective and we're able to work rightly, 
to the glory of God. We're able to recreate rightly to the glory of God. We're able to have pleasure rightly to the glory of God. We're able to enjoy blessings rightly to the glory of God. Why? Because it's all about him. It's not about us. When, see, when we're serving ourselves, then we're, we're not truly worshiping Jesus. He just gets added to the list of things that have benefited us along the way. And so when somebody asks us, hey, do you know where you're going to go when you die? Oh, yeah, yeah, I made that Jesus investment. I prayed that prayer. Well, did Jesus take the throne of your heart? Because if not, you need to revisit that. So if you're here and, you're, and the answer to your question as to why you want to be a Christian is to be a better person or to be well thought of or whatever it is, if it's anything other than, man, Jesus is king. I've got no hope other than him. But he's my God, he's my father, and he's made a way. If it's anything other than that, you need to examine that. And the good news is, is that that holy God, that everlasting, righteous, eternal God is also a father. And he's your father and he cares about you so much so that he gave himself on the cross in our place so that we would have a way back into relationship with him. The glory of craving and hunger that's inside of us will only be satisfied in Jesus. It'll only be satisfied when we're restored into relationship with God and we're only restored in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how good you are, how hard you try, how much good you do. The Bible says your righteousness is like filthy rags. Only, only through trusting Jesus. So today is Palm Sunday. And if you remember on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in to Jerusalem and he was praised by the crowds, right? They declared him as king, Hosanna, save us, laid down palm leaves. They were, they were crying out to him, worshiping him. The strange truth is that within just a few days, a few hours even, that same crowd had turned on him and were yelling, crucify him. So if you're here and you're, well, just period, you hear, what was your confession to Jesus? Is he actually king of kings, your savior, your only hope, the one who was resurrected from the grave, who has established himself as eternally powerful and authoritative and righteous and will judge the earth? And you know that if standing before him, you got nothing. And so you've cried out for his mercy. If that's not why you're here, if you're just hoping that you'll get better and, and that you know, you'll, you'll morally move down the line, then you totally misunderstood the gospel. But I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to invite you. I'm here to invite you. Because this is far more than religion. This is far more than just try harder, do better, come you know, feel better because you're a part of a church. This is transformational, living water. So, back to our communion cups. You stand before that holy God. You will one day stand before that holy God. And there is no hope for sinners in front of a, a holy God. So it's, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Like, and yet, what we need is not a mirror to help see us as a better person. What we need is a window with which to see the glory and the hope of Christ. So through that window, through that window that you hold in your hands, the sacraments of Christ's 
body and blood. He says, hey, get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off yourself because you could never be enough. You could never earn it, but put your eyes on me. And as you see me, I want you to remember, remember this. And he tells us, hey, take this until I come again. When you're gathered, do this in remembrance of me so that we will know that that holy God made a way through his only son. And he says, hey, this is my body broken for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, don't eat. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, rejoice. Rejoice and eat. If you're here and you're not a Christian, keep reflecting. Keep dealing with the reality that you will stand before a holy God. It doesn't matter what you've told people, how long you've led others to believe that you've been converted, how long you've told people that you're a Christian. What you need to remember, what you need to focus on is that none of that matters on the day when you stand before the one who knows all, sees all, and gave his all. And so you need to deal with that now. So if you're not a Christian, don't just take this flippantly and drink judgment on yourself. But instead, bow and surrender Surrender to Jesus. Cry out for mercy. For mercy. Simply saying, I am a sinner, Lord, forgive me. Confessing that you are a sinner who needs a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. He proved it by being resurrected. If that, you do that, then you get to rejoice in new life and you could take this meal now as one of his, as a born-again believer. And we would love to rejoice with you, pray with you, answer any of your questions later. But for the, for, for the rest of us, we don't, we don't want you to remember back to that moment. I don't want you to excuse yourself as this, you know, I've already been forgiven. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about your own pursuit of glory and how you've laid God and his commands aside for your own gain, your own comfort. And before you partake of his blood that was spilled for you, maybe you need to bow and ask for, ask for forgiveness as well. So do that right now. Just... Look through the window of that cup into Jesus' veins being spilled out onto the dirt because of the sin that you and I committed. Confess, ask forgiveness, and then rejoice. He says this is the cup of the new covenant. This is where hope is found. Church, take and drink. Listen, you can walk away from your statue. You can walk away from the, the, uh, the finale of your life that you're hoping to, to drum up and you can ser serve the only true king and experience true satisfaction. Listen, I can't manufacture this for you. Only the God of the universe can come and show up and reveal his glory. And like it says in Acts 9, whenever Saul was confronted, it says something like scales fell off of his eyes. That's my prayer for you this morning. If you don't yet know Jesus as your king and savior, that he would enlighten you, as it says in Ephesians, so that your hearts, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you see the true glory and power and riches of our King Jesus. And you lay aside the worship of yourself and you repent. You turn from worshiping you and you turn to giving your life to Jesus. You're not earning that after that. You're simply surrendering and everything you do is to his glory now. Let's pray. God, help us.
Help us to uh, see your glory and respond accordingly. May we not make light of it. Father, may there not be any false assurances. May there also not be false guilt. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. And we thank you for that, Jesus. We thank you that your sacrifice is final. And even as we have fell away and sinned and and misused your name, you still welcome us back home, that you forgive us, that you're faithful and true to forgive as we confess our sins. So, Lord, may there not be false assurance for those who don't know you. May you bring them to yourself today. May there not be false condemnation, but rather a room full, a church full of grateful transformed hearts, born again under the power of the Spirit, laying down the pursuit and the, and the, the search of self-exaltation for the true glory of God. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit. We ask and hope it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, the altar's open. And certainly, if you have questions about 